This podcast is sponsored by Cellar Plan from Berry Brothers and Rudd, collecting fine wines for future drinking. Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. The clamours for a second referendum are growing, but are those people calling for a people's vote really interested in what voters actually think? Or is this just a plot to stop Brexit? In Sweden, voters go to the polls next weekend, and the Swedish Democrats, once regarded as a sinister group of far-right cranks, could become the largest party. So, what's changed? And Soho, what was it like in the 80s? Well, judging by the conversation in this week's issue between Michael Heath and Christopher Howes, it was a hotbed of debauchery, drinking and death. But that's now a vanished world. We hear from both of them about what life was like there in the glory days. So first up, what do Tony Blair, Gary Lineker, Rory Bremner and John Major have in common? The answer, they all want voters to have a second say on Brexit. And they're not alone. The campaign group seeking another referendum is growing in confidence and they think they're winning the argument. But Rod Liddell isn't convinced. The vote to leave the EU was unequivocal, he says in this week's cover piece. So why won't the lovies just accept it and move on? Joining us to discuss is Rod, James McGrory, the Executive Director of People's Vote, and Tom Slater, Deputy Editor of Spiked Online. So James, you're involved in organising this People's Vote. Can you tell us a bit more about what exactly it is? Yes, yeah, so it's a, an umbrella campaign of a large number of different uh, organisations who've come together to demand a people's vote on the final Brexit uh, deal. We believe that uh, a lot of new facts have come to light, that none of us around this table or indeed in the country could have known at the time of the referendum in 2016. We believe that uh, a series of promises that were made uh, in 2016 are bluntly not going to be kept and that, frankly, the process is a complete mess at the moment. You've got uh, politicians in Westminster who can't agree amongst themselves. The two major parties are utterly divided on this issue. A cabinet that doesn't seem to be able to agree amongst themselves without resignations over over the matter. Take it out of the hands of 650 people in London and put it put it to the country of 65 million people. Um, uh, and I think that's 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 the only democratic thing to do in this situation because it will decide the future of the country. Rod, you've of course written about this in your piece this week. What do you make of this people's vote? Uh, I, I don't know what these facts are which nobody knew about at the time, but which we all knew about now, which we all know about now. It seems to me that the people's vote people. Um, are simply reiterating the same argument which they made after the vote uh, happened back in 2016, which is that we knew what was going to happen, but you're too sick to. That's exactly what it is, because all the people who are in the people's vote, of course, are Remainers, and they're all the people who are saying exactly the same things now. You didn't know what you were doing because you were ignorant. The only new facts that have come to light that I'm aware of uh, and the fact that and these may be important facts, I, I grant you, that Gary Lineker and Baldrick are very unhappy about the state of affairs uh, and that that may indeed persuade the population uh, that they were wrong to have voted by a substantial margin and a margin uh, which was large in every single region of England except for London uh, to vote for Brexit. Uh, I just don't see that any new information has come to light whatsoever. It is another attempt to derail the people's vote. James, is that true, that there aren't any 
leavers on the people's vote side? It's utterly, utterly un, un, untrue. I'll just give you a couple of I- I- examples. Uh, Duncan Bannatyne, uh, back to people's vote last week. He's one of the dragons, was famously for leave back in, in 2016. One of the founders of OFOC, which is one of the young people's organisations we've got involved, Will Dry, uh, very outspoken. He voted a leave and deeply regrets it now. In fact, if you look at our Twitter feed, every day this month of August, we've been um, running uh, a video from just an ordinary person. People are sending them in uh, themselves to say, I voted leave and I want a, a people's vote. So it's just utterly un- untrue to say that it's all full of remainers. I mean, literally look at our Twitter feed every single day this month and not a celebrity, not a politician, not someone in Westminster, a regular person from around the country. So what are we, 20, 29th today? We can, you can show you 29 examples just this month of leavers who want a people's vote. So, so it's just... 29? That's magnificent. There was, 17, there was 17 million. Well, we don't quite have the capacity to deliver 17 million, Rob. But look at the, if you don't want to take tangible examples, look at the, look at the opinion polls, which are overwhelmingly in favour of a people's vote, including amongst leave voters. You're, you're, if you are basing this new information on the opinion polls are changing, uh, the, the, the argument which was always laid at the door of us Brexiteers that we were credulous and gullible and rather thick untermensch, uh, you guys are the credulous ones if you really believe the opinion polls. But you won't take tangible evidence of the videos we're posting or the people that I've mentioned or the opinion polls. You're just putting your head in the sand and refusing to accept that there's any leave who might have changed their mind. I'm looking at what has actually happened, which is that 17 million people voted in favour of leaving by a substantial margin. And you don't think they've changed their mind? You don't think a single one of them has changed their mind? That's that's what what you're saying. Dreamed up by you or something dreamed up by Morrie, which got it wrong the day before the poll... Or by you, Gov, which got it wrong the day before the poll. It's not 29 people, including Baldrick and Gary Lineker. It's the people of Great Britain who voted. And nothing new has come up since. Now, the second part of what you were saying uh, about, about the mess that we're in, I, I absolutely agree. I think you're absolutely right. I think the mess, but the mess is a consequence not of Brexit, it's a consequence of an inept government. You know, and th- those are two very different things. I mean, it seems to me untenable that we should be heading towards Brexit with a Prime Minister who herself voted Remain and a Chancellor who voted Remain. That seems to me untenable. And I would concede that the way the government has handled it has been abysmal. But it does not address the issue that there is no material change whatsoever in the circumstances of Brexit. None whatsoever. Tom, do you think we should be having a people's vote? Well, first of all, I don't think it is a people's vote. I mean, the, even the title suggests that the thing that we had in 2016 was what, a sub-people's vote, a non-people's vote, a people we don't want to associate with type vote. It falls down on the face of it. And whilst, James, you might talk about a handful of people on your Twitter feed or one of the dragons off of Dragon's Den, I don't think that necessarily changed the underlying factors here. And I think, actually, the inherent kind of elitism of the so-called people's vote campaign is rather shown by the people who end up fronting it. I mean, I sometimes wonder whether you recognise the spokespeople you're choosing are incredibly unpalatable to most people you're supposed to be convincing or if you don't care. So alongside Baldrick that we've already heard about, there's also people like Julian Dunkerton, one of the co-founders of Superdry, who came out for the People's Vote the other week saying he was going to donate a million pounds. This is a guy whose company actually paid the princely sum of 28p per hour to workers in India. People look at people like this and they don't think they have their best interests at heart. And you have this kind of rogues gallery of 
um, sneering capitalists, financiers, Tony Blair, and alongside you know the bald one off of Star Trek and the bald one off of Mock the Week. This is not a grassroots movement, and I think you have to face up to the fact that if anything, the more you go down this road, the more people are going to recognise that the campaign for a people's vote is anything but. Well, it's interesting how quickly people reach for the insults. You know, abuse thrown around about the kind of people who support our campaign saying they're all elitists. Well, if the following people are elitists, National Union of Students, young people overwhelmingly, and we frequently use young people as our spokesperson. The Royal College of Nurses, nurses, are they the elites now? Are they? Uh, trade unionists, we had a number of trade unions come out, come out and back us. They're the elites now, working people. I just, I think it's very easy just to reach and slag off a couple of people, slag me off, slag some politicians off. I think it's the easiest trick in the book, but it doesn't, uh, doesn't actually acknowledge the fact about who we do have supporting us. We've got a million followers to our campaign across our networks on social well, media. congratulations. Congratulations. Well, they're they're not, not, if there's a million... If there's a million... No, but that's a different point, isn't it, Rod? It's a diff, I'm answering a different point. I'm not saying I've got more than 17 million. That's what a people's vote would test. All I'm saying is you can't label students... Uh, nurses, trade unionists and a million followers on social media. They can't all be the elite, or the elite's got a lot bloody bigger than I thought it was. So, I, I just... <laughs> you see, this is the problem. If, if I started a... I, I could start a campaign tomorrow and probably get 500,000 pretty quickly. Uh, it, it's very interesting the way that social media has gone with with what we call click democracy, both with with 36 degrees and um, uh, changed uh, uh, doc and all that all, all, all that sort of stuff that actually we these days the, the government hasn't got to grips with this yet uh, overestimate um, the 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 weight of this sort of protest that actually it's not that terribly hard to get 500,000 a million people to click uh, in between their their lunch and maybe jogging around the park or whatever they do, you know, it's quite easy to do that. It's less easy to hold a referendum where there is a very, very, very clear mandate and a mandate which was delivered only two years ago. You know, so I, I mean, I mean, good luck to James. I mean, you know, keep on with it, mate. But you're going to have to get a lot more than a million. You're going to have to get about ten to twelve million before we listen to you. Um, and in the meantime, I don't think we should, um, because I'm on your podcast. To be fair, this is led by some of the most discredited politicians that the world has seen. Whether it's Tony Blair, who's responsible for the two most disastrous um, uh, uh, policy decisions, both domestic and foreign, that this country's experienced in a hundred years. The first being the ir- illegal invasion of Iraq. The second being the opening the doors to uh, unlimited numbers of immigrants. I mean, two absolutely disastrous decisions. Uh, one of the reasons why Jeremy Corbyn is secure in his post is that people like me, who were in the Labour Party, really did want to change from the likes of Tony Blair and the man even more loathed than him, Peter Mandelson. Uh, you know, and then there's Paddy Ashdown, who said, who said, with great, with great weight and importance, just before the vote came through, he said, uh, "I this is this is this is the vote of the British people, and I will not listen to anyone who does not listen to the people's will. Whatever happens in this vote, that is what we must do." And John Major said the same. I mean, and now they're all turning tail. It's hilarious. James, what exactly would the vote be on? Is it? Is the question going to be, should we remain or leave, or is it going to be different? Uh, well, I think that is a question for Parliament to decide. I also think it's quite difficult for me to predict now. So say you could say it was between the deal and staying in the EU, but then what if there isn't 
a deal. I think it's quite difficult for me to say definitively. My own view is it should be with the deal on offer versus the deal you have now, i.e. being a member of the European Union. But it's quite difficult to be definitive when... I don't. I have no idea what is on offer. But this raises an interesting point as well because you talk about how the p- opinion polls overwhelmingly show that there is support for a second referendum. There's nothing of the sort. I mean, John Curtis put out an analysis yesterday and said that basically it all comes down to how you word it. I mean, there was an interesting one. Best for Britain, which is obviously a, a similar organisation to your own, put out a poll in April that they said heralded the fact that all these people wanted a second referendum because people were changing their minds. They actually asked people two questions, one of which said, would you like a public vote? They said no. The other question, they said, would you like a final say? And they said yes. And no prizes for guessing which one they put at the top of that press release. But I think we could argue back and forth about what the polls are suggesting. I don't think it shows much movement. Or we could go back to that poll that everyone took part in two years ago, in which a decisive vote for leave was delivered, and it was the biggest democratic mandate in our history. And everything that you're doing, doesn't matter how you dress it up, is only going to be taken by the leave voters you claim to be wanting to convince as an attempt to betray that, led by plenty of people who, frankly, seem to hold them in contempt. Well, on this, if nothing else, I agree with David Davis. Uh, A democracy that cannot change its mind ceases to be... Oh, come on. There ceases to be a democracy. The The idea that in a free country like Britain... I am not allowed to air my opinions to say. No what one's I saying think. you can't. You are. You're saying I'm being anti. You're saying I'm being. You're saying being. I'm being you're saying it's. You're saying it's being anti-democratic. Is your no. Opinion. I'm saying it, this is what I'm saying. It's really simple. It is anti-democratic to hold a vote on an important issue. You're saying, not, so you're saying I'm anti-democratic. No. You're saying what I'm standing for is anti-democratic. Now you're not letting me saying. speak. But the point is, it's anti-democratic to hold a vote on a particular issue of incredible importance. Tell people how important it is. Say that their vote will be listened to. Not implement it and then hold another vote. That's not democracy. And this is the really important point that we can't let people pretend that anti-democracy is democracy in the same way that we don't think it's appropriate to try the same person over and over and over again in the hope that you could convict them it's also not more democracy to hold the same question over and over and over again before it's even implemented in the hopes that people like you get what they think is the right answer you do realize they've you do realise they've changed that law, don't you? That you can now try people for the same offence twice if there's if new evidence. And I actually think that's a bad thing, but that's a separate but, but that, discussion. They've changed that law. So I, I would imagine what you've just said completely under, underlines my point. If new facts emerge, and Rod asked for one, who knew we were going to pay £50 billion just to leave? No one mentioned that at the time of the referendum. There's just one new fact, and there are a, a lot more. What do, you, what do you think is the most convincing fact? I think £50 billion is pretty good. I think the border in Ireland is something that genuinely concerns people, that I think our side has to take the responsibility for as much as anybody else for not really getting in, stuck into that issue in 2016. Nobody said that there was... That, that issue just didn't really get debated in, let's, let's be honest. So it did a bit. A, a bit, bit, but, but not... not like, uh, I don't think many people in the public say they felt, felt it was probably... The arguments on both sides, um, back in 2016, I thought, I thought they were appalling campaigns. Um, on both sides, and very, very little light was shed. Uh, I, if, if I'd thought for a single nanosecond that 350 million quid would be hypothecated immediately to the National Health Service, I would have voted Remain, uh, because I can't think of a worse w- waste of money. Um, by the same token, um, if I thought that what George Cameron uh, uh, was uh, what George Osborne was saying before before the vote and the Project Fear stuff. I'd have emigrated out of terror. Uh, it's all bollocks, uh, and it was a bollocks on both sides. And I think I think most people know that. And it's not a great surprise, you know, to the average British person that we may have been lied to by politicians, or they may not have been entirely uh, uh, even-handed with the truth. I mean, you know, this doesn't come as a shock to most people. But, you know, the, the idea of having the vote again, 
Um, well, indeed, a lot of people who are associated with the People's Vote, uh, whether it be your sponsors in Europe, uh, in the European Union, of course, they like to make sure that votes are run twice, to make sure they get the right result. And I remember Tony Blair um, insisting that uh, Palestinians should go to the polls and the Palestinians should vote, and then as soon as they'd done so and elected someone he didn't like, told them to do it again. I mean, uh, so there is a bit of a track record there, I grant you. James, just finally, can I ask you, what would happen, say, if the vote does suggest that people don't want Brexit? What then happens? Do we do we stop Brexit or do we have another vote just to double check? Well, my own view is that the, 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 the people's vote should be the decision that we then rest with. Totally up to other people to say otherwise or campaign for what they want. That's that's my view. We live in a free country and I have every democratic right to, to, to air that view. What I do accept is that if the people's vote is to reject Brexit because the people don't like the Brexit deal that's been done or don't like the sound of no deal or whatever reason it may be, that there will be a lot of disappointed people out there there'll be a lot of uh, people who voted leave and you know it's you can't group 17 million people or as one but there are definitely some people who voted leave because they felt that Westminster wasn't listening to them because they felt that pace of change in their communities had been too fast that services hadn't kept up that had genuine grievances I personally don't believe any of those will be properly addressed by Brexit at all in fact I think those people have got the most to lose I think the most vulnerable people in our society as with many things will have the most to lose uh, from Brexit. But I accept that they still have grievances that are real and that need to be addressed. But for me, that has always been a domestic policy platform that past governments have not addressed well enough. And I speak as someone who served for five years in one of those. It does betray something quite interesting, which is people on your side of the argument, but that I don't mean all Remainers, because the vast majority of Remainers are good Democrats and they recognise that the vote has to be implemented, which is this idea that you can take away people's vote, you could take away the this great decision that they took and that was invested in them and then say but don't worry we'll cry some crocodile tears and look after you they voted for this self-confidently they wanted more control over their own nation and frankly this kind of whole routine of well we'll put in a few more subsidies is not going to pacify everyone what i said is it also these are the people i don't see how it can be frustrating the will of the people to ask the people i'm not talking about asking the people themselves i'm on the basis of the deal do you like what's actually been done? Ask the people. I don't see how you can be scared of the people. The reason why people are a bit edgy about this is because I think they're worried what the people will say. I'm saying put it to the people. The people are a bit edgy about it is that we had a vote. <laughs> it's as simple as that. We had a vote. And, and you then can never have another vote. That doesn't been, sound like democracy to me. consecutive attempts by, and I will use the phrase, a kind of elite to stop it happening. Whether it be within the law courts at the behest of Gina Miller and others, or whether it be in the House of Lords, you know, there are attempts on the part of what we see as a liberal establishment to stop a democratic vote taking, to, to stop the will of the people taking place. Uh, and uh, of course you're perfectly within your rights to try and organise a, a campaign to have another vote. But, you know, I just do not think for a single minute it comes close to the import of the vote we already had and the supposition that the people may be a bit sick and may not have understood what we were getting into, I think that is the thing which marks it out as being a bit elitist. But, in, but I've not said any of those. I've not said any of those. It's things. implied in everything in which you're saying. Well, I don't, that's, that, that is just insulting. I've got my own words and I'll choose them. Thank you very much. <clears throat> there are things that have come to light since the referendum that none of us knew. I consider myself to be quite bright and quite well educated. I had no idea, and I worked on the Remain campaign. I didn't know we were going to have to pay a 50 billion divorce bill to leave. The Leave campaign sure didn't mention it. Now, that is a new fact. Whether you look like it or not, that is a new fact. That is a new fact. I'm not saying anyone's stupid. How could anyone have known that 
no one knew at the time. Also, didn't know that the kind of um, prognostications of instant recession and plagues of locusts weren't going to come true. That's some new information that has come to light. But this fundamentally people comes are. back down. People no, no. But this comes down back to Rod, Rod's point about the people aren't stupid, and when they see people, various different representatives of the elite, trying to have a second vote, a people's vote. They don't buy it. Oh, you look, you boys look rattled to me. You look rattled. It's insults. That's all you're throwing out. You look rattled. I think you're worried what the people think. I, I really do. Otherwise, you wouldn't be c- coming around. It's just, it's just, it's been 15 minutes of insults. You look rattled. You can, you can, you can <laughs> you you want, but we know what they think. We, we you don't. You know, you know what everyone thinks all of the time, do you? That's, that's your claim. You know what all of the country thinks all of the time. Come on. You don't. The only way you can test that is at the ballot box. We did. <laughs> and we you, did you don't appreciate that, ins- that things might have changed. And things don't change. Time doesn't crying. move on. It was wonderful. Thank you, Rod, James and Tom. What are you drinking this weekend? Start a salad plan with Berry Brothers and Rudd and soon you could be uncorking something out of the ordinary. To start your cellar collection, visit bbr.com forward slash cellar plan. In Sweden, the popular Sweden Democrats are steadily gathering support ahead of the country's general election next week. So why are voters flocking to the far right? In this week's magazine, Frederick Eriksson writes that while the Democrats have been called neo-fascist, far-right, racist and xenophobic, nothing has stopped their rise. So, what's going on? Frederick, you start your piece with these fairly dramatic scenes from Sweden. Can you tell us a bit more about what's going on out there? Yes, so I'm starting my piece in the magazine this week uh, with the story about what happened in Gothenburg in mid-August when 80 vehicles were torched by youth gangs that blazed them uh, and and destroyed um, uh, many, many cars uh, uh, in, in, in different regions of Gothenburg. And ever since then, you've seen sort of similar incidents happening um, in many other parts of Sweden, in Uppsala, where I live, which is just north of Stockholm, in Stockholm, in southern part of Sweden. Uh, and this... It's not something new. It's it's a development that has been going on for quite some time, but it it gives sort of a lot of people the impression that crime in Sweden has uh, has uh, gone up substantially. That you uh, should feel unsafe if you go out in, in go out to the city uh, in in during nighttime, uh, and created sort of a lot more intention around issues of crime. Uh, punishment, police, resources to police, a, a discussion that Sweden hasn't had for quite some time. Fraser, you spent the summer in Sweden. Did you witness anything similar to what Frederick's describing? Um, look, not really, because I think Sweden is kind of, um, well, the way I like to think of it is that it's um, nine parts heaven and one part hell. And you can avoid the hell if you um, if you know how to. It's still it's one of the you know the nicest summers Sweden's had in like two hundred and fifty years. And it's certainly there are so many signs of things getting better rather than worse. Like three or four years ago, for example, there were um, beggars in every single street corner, immigrant beggars. And to a British eyes, this was a sign of sort of civil disorder. You wouldn't be allowed to to beg in every street corner in Britain. The police would move you on. And um, but the Swedes did seem to have a problem. The people as 
come professional beggars. We didn't know how to move them on. But now they've got a handle on that. I came into Sweden via the um, the bridge from um, Copenhagen, and there was a passport checker there. A new th- a new thing, but still didn't take um, too much time. It was perfectly um, civil, and the number of people coming into Sweden has really collapsed from the from the peak. So the government ought to be able to say to the Swedes, "Look, we had real problems three or four years ago, but we've made real progress as well," and take some kind of credit for it. I'm struck by the fact that, as Frederick Gerriksen says in his piece, the the, the Swedish Prime Minister and the Swedish um, Social Democrats, the governing party, seem to be resigned to a terrible election result. So my last day in Sweden, I heard him give this uh, this appeal on the radio. It should have been an election broadcast, but he was saying, please don't let the Sweden Democrats do very well. In other words, he was talking about the populists, not his own party. He had nothing really to say about himself. The election message seemed to be, whatever you do, don't let these populists in. It seems that everybody in the Swedish election is saying is talking about the Sweden Democrats, which gives me the suspicion that they're going to do rather well. In the same way everybody spoke about Trump, and wouldn't that be a disaster? You create a hype around something, it tends to get momentum as a result. And Frederick, what exactly is driving support for the Sweden Democrats? Well, there are lots of things that are doing it. Um, I mean, as Frey said, Said, uh, when we had the immigration chaos that peaked in the autumn of 2015, it was virtually one issue that drove a lot of people to Sweden Democrats, and that was that was the issue of, of migration. Um, in in Sweden, you had every other party in the parliament that had agreed to a political truce, uh, which meant that even even in matters when the opposition didn't like what the government was doing, they wouldn't vote against them in 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 parliament. And that issue, together with uh, the migrant flows, created sort of this toxic mix that uh, pushed a lot of people to uh, to actually move to the Sweden Democrats, regardless of the shame factor, regardless of the stigma that comes uh, if you if you actually admit that you were voting for them. Now it's a bit different, uh, partly because um, uh, all those issues that Fraser is mentioning that. There is greater order in Sweden right now on matters related to migration, to uh, street beggars, etc. But Sweden Democrats manage still to attract more voters. And my take on it is that they do it because they have become a magnet for anyone with a grievance. And that can be sort of the price of car insurance going up or that you failed to get uh, your building permits uh, or that you have, you know, grievances with politicians, policies, access to healthcare, uh, many different issues. And and the Sweden Democrats, they don't really need to present any type of policies or convince voters that their policy will actually do things better. They are just sort of collecting up all uh, those people in Sweden that are frustrated with politics, that are angry and that want to see a change. And I think that is really, I sort of, when I, when I think about sort of uh, how the Sweden Democrats is going to perform in this election, why I think they are actually uh, pretty substantially bigger than what the opinion polls are saying right now, it is because the temperament level in Swedish Swedish politics today, the, the 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 sort of the widespread anger that you can see with politicians and policymakers, that is really what's going to push them to become a really, really big party, perhaps even the biggest party in parliament after this election. And Fraser, the Sweden Democrats are often described as being populist and far right. I mean do you think they are far right? 
Well, um, Frederick describes him as populist nationalist in his piece. I think that is fair. Uh, there was a time where you couldn't pick up a Swedish paper without hearing them described as far-right or neo-fascist. And I spent a good amount of time trying to work out what positions they've got that earned them this title. Where, where are their extreme positions? You kind of expect, talking about this party, that they're led by some foaming-mouthed monster, but they're not. They're led by this guy, Jimmy Orkison, who's fairly mild-mannered. He took a while off with stress leave after the last election, saying it was important that fathers are there emotionally as well as physically for their children. I mean, he's a, in, in that way, he's a very Swedish figure, in the way that Nigel Farage is a British figure. Um, but it's difficult to think of any policies they've got which you could really describe as extreme. I mean, their history, that is problematic because they came out of a party that was genuinely a bunch of sort of far-right um, lunatics. And for that reason, all other enemies have said, ah, this is, these guys are just the, the new old fascists dressed up as new ones. And they found, to their surprise, that these anathemas don't wash with the Swedish public. If you're a, member, if you're a Swedish journalist or a Swedish politician, you, you might think, oh, these guys are beyond the pale because of their history. But then you find out a voter who's concerned about immigration doesn't really care what the party was doing, what Sweden Democrats were doing um, 15, 20 years ago. What they care now is they've got somebody in Jimmy Orkison who is voicing their concerns about immigration at a time where all the other parties are ganging up against him. And the other thing is that Orkison's enemies play into his hands all the time, every single day. I'll give you an example. When I was in Sweden, you had this sort of event, the Gay Pride Festival, which is a bigger deal uh, in Sweden than we Brits might imagine. And there was this panel where you had the leaders of you know six or seven Swedish parties all giving their various positions on gay rights, but they had excluded Jimmy Orkison. They hadn't invited him because he was beyond the pale. And that image, yet again, seemed to embody everybody ganging up and slinging names and abuse at this party simply because they were saying coming up with policies that are backed by between a fifth and a quarter of Swedes. So I think Sweden is a fascinating example of how a botched reaction to populism can actually make populism four to five times greater than it would otherwise be. Frederick, you also talk in your piece about how the Sweden Democrats could become the largest party but might not actually get into government. Can you explain to us how that would happen? Yeah, I mean... Sweden is a, a, a sort of a, a the political situation in Sweden is that you have one block to the left and one block to the right. So now we have a government which is made up uh, by the Social Democrats that are in government together with the Green Party, but they have also parliamentary support by uh, the left party, the former Communist Party. And on the other side uh, of the aisle, you have sort of the the centre right parties. None of them are going to get any, anywhere close to getting a majority in the parliament. Uh, uh, if you look at sort of the centre-right alliance, uh, they may get sort of around 34, 35, 36 uh, percentage points together uh, when, you, when you sort of take all these parts together. That's, that's sort of uh, uh, what, what they will get. And if, if they are going to get into government, uh, they will need other parties actually voting for uh, Ulf Christensen, who is the leader of the uh, centre-right moderate party, the Conservative Party. They would need other parties to vote for him to become uh, uh, the prime minister. When critical matters like uh, budget policies being decided, they need to have uh, uh, other parties, if not voting in favour of, of their proposal, government proposal, but at least not trying to kill it. 
by voting against it. So that will give Jimmy Åkesson and the Sweden Democrats a very strong position uh, in the parliament after this election, because uh, if if the centre-right alliance want to sort of kick out the current government and, and form a new government with their parties, they will basically need to have a deal with, with Jimmy Åkesson about uh, lots of different policies, because he's not going to support uh, a new government without getting anything in return. So we do quite a lot of stuff on Sweden here at The Spectator, and it's fair to say there's always quite a lot of interest from a British audience. Why do you think that is? Well, I think Sweden's always captured a corner of the British imagination. I mean, the, the left for a long time looked on Sweden as being the most socialistic country after the end of the Cold War. You know, communism collapsed, but you've still got Sweden with its massive high taxes and government. And then the right looked at Sweden as well for the way that they use private sector companies to run schools and hospitals. But generally, it seems to be the most kind of liberal country in Europe, one of the most liberal countries in the world. And what we can see recently is this liberalism eating itself, that they wanted to, they just pushed it too far. They wanted to become, in the words of one of the Swedish government members, a, a, a humanitarian superpower, a very noble aim. But Sweden shows the, the rest of the world that if you do take in immigrants at a greater rate than you can properly digest... And let's not forget, the, the. I mean, although the figures in Frederick's piece, a quarter of a million Swedes, doesn't sound very much to us, but in the British perspective, it's absolutely massive. You have tens of thousands of unaccompanied children, and then all of a sudden you get crimes, crimes that never used to happen in Sweden. The grenade crimes that, um, to, um, that Toby Lindvall wrote about for us in the cover story last week. I pick up the Swedish press, you hear about people being shot point blank. In the, in the streets as gangland wars about somebody else turning up home to find a grenade in his lounge and it turns out that it was thrown in the wrong address. Now, this is amazing because, to Brits because it so contrasts with what we imagine to be this kind of Scandinavian paradise. And we ask, where did they go wrong? And the answer seems to be that liberalism overextended itself and it allowed in people who it didn't have a plan to integrate and so a lot of countries, not just Britain, look at Sweden and think, here is an example of what not to do. Thank you, Fraser and Frederick. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast, at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. And finally, drinking, fighting and friendship. What was Soho really like in the 80s? Christopher Howes, the author of a new book on Soho, and The Spectator's cartoon editor, Michael Heath, were among those who were there and remember it. Last week, in conversation with Fraser Nelson, they talked about their experiences of the daily tragic comedy that played out in the West End of London. Here they are. Well, the typical day you would start at the Coach and Horses, and it would be... What time? Well, when they opened. Eleven. God's sake, always at 11 o'clock. The stroke of 11. Right, and Geoffrey would be standing, stand, or sitting at one end, and two other people sitting, standing next to him. One of the things you shouldn't do, you couldn't do, I soon found this out, was never boast, you must yeah. never be happy or suggest that you are particularly happy. You must ne- never suggest that things are all right, thank you. I've never felt better in my life. You had to be in a total state of panic and despair about something or other. However, this sort of the mixture of a whole lot of us here, remember we've got intelligent people, we've got failed this, that, and teachers, and God knows what else. And Francis Bacon, who was earning then, you know, £76,000 painting. 
and various other people who were earning that sort of money. You must never talk about money. It, it, it was peculiar rules, that you, things that you could and could not say. You could not say, I really did a funny drawing today, or it was really good, that was not considered the right thing to do. Um, and it, it, it was, we were all amateur livers or something, and all starting out all over again, and, and fearless when you think of the booze we shifted. I mean, it was, I was doing an average of 15 large whiskies a day. You thought that I drank a lot and didn't show it. Uh, no, you didn't. You didn't show it. No. Did you drink much then, Christopher? I drank a good deal. Yes, we had drink in the office and we had drink in the pub, and so it would go on from day to day. But some people were just astonishing drinkers. There was a a man there called Bill Moore. He was a driver of all things. God help us! And he used to sit there at the bar with his sweater on. He didn't have a shirt. And he would just sit there drinking double bellses until until it was closing time, then drive home or drive to France or whatever it was. I think he'd been in the Grenadiers and he'd he'd seen something terrible in Europe and it sort of disturbed him. There were such things as groupies for cartoonists. There were girls hanging round you uh, in Fleet Street. Uh, um, There were a lot of mini cartoons in Fleet Street, you see. It was a job. um, So, roughly, what year are we talking about here? She's 50s, early mid 50s. Oh, well, I wasn't born then. I started in Soho in 54. So when did the cartoonist groupies come along then? And I wasn't, I, either, neither was I a groupie, but I wasn't grouped. Um, I was groped, but not grouped. I, these girls would hang around waiting for them to finish off their drawing for the following day. Um, but they would then go off with the boys and they'd <coughs> have meals or whatever it was, or go to the various clubs. And... Is that because cartoonists were wealthy? Were they the footballers of their day? It was cash in hand and they were wealthy, really. I mean, they, you couldn't get a cartoonist who was stable, so they didn't have houses or anything like that, many of them. And they gave it away um, to women. And it meant freely. It, it was, I'm try, always trying to think of how to explain it all. It's very difficult because I came across that sort of life when I was in Brighton before, which was mm. all criminals. Mm. And I thought they were terrific. I thought they were very uh, terrific fun. If, I mean, as long as you didn't get the wrong side of them. I mean, some of them have razor blades stuck under their fingernails. Mm. They get angry with each other and whack each other with billy cues. But the idea was to have a fight and you get whacked. Yeah, claret would be all over the place. Oh, Never seen anything like it. Fucking yeah, hell, all over the place. And they liked that because it left them with this white scar, which is like your German German chums fighting for the war. Well, like the bomb and the Colony Room Club had a marvelous chip right down this cheek. What's the Colony Room Club? So, Colony Room Club's part of the Eternal Triangle. In my Soho, this is in the eighties. So, people would drink at the Coach and Horses in the morning. But in those days, of course, licensing laws meant pubs closed at three o'clock, and they didn't open again till half past five. What are you supposed to do? So, what days are we talking about? Well, any time before about nineteen eighty-eight, when they changed the licensing laws, and so you had to spend the afternoon somewhere, and so you had afternoon drinking clubs. The Colony Room Club being the best of them, I think. Ooh, there were some very nice. Nasty ones. There was one called uh, um, the Kismet in in Newport Street. Right. And it had two nicknames. One was Death in the Afternoon, and the other one was the Iron Lung. And it was really fetid. It was underground, no windows, and the, the walls were sort of weeping damp with bits of paint coming off them. And the lavatory opened straight off the bar and had no intervening doors. And it was run by a marvellous woman called Maltese Mary, who knew what was what. But it was really horrible. Is that the one where Geoffrey said, uh, someone said to Geoffrey, what's that strange smell? He said, failure. Yes, precisely. (laughs) 
I, when you say they drank all the time, I think most of us worked. Yes. You know, I mean, we were, the thing of a, a crowd of drunks on a bomb site or anything, it wasn't like that. You were surrounded by very intelligent people. The big sin was to be a bore. And then you were immediately victimised and, and your foolish remarks were thrown back at you. Did you go for professional reasons? I mean, did you think if you spent enough time in the company of all these varied, witty people, it might help you come up with ideas for cartoons? Or, or was it just social? It was just great fun, was it not? It was just Despite fun. the misery, the things that happened were just astonishing. And it always ended in tragedy. You know, divorce, uh, breakdown... Yes, breakdown of health, falling down the stairs... Death. I mean, that was the automatic ending. It's bound to be. And all that excitement, you see, it wasn't just a normal mob. It was someone, Francis Bacon's going to turn up, or he's in the area, and things like that. Now, when he turned up, everyone sort of jumped, and they're all hanging around him, and he's nauseously famous even then. Now, my feeling about him drinking is a bit odd. Although he certainly was drunk a lot of the time, I think he got other people pissed. Mm. Champagne for my... Yes, real yeah, friends, real, real payments of money, sham friends, yes. Yes, and I think he, he liked seeing people falling apart. That's interesting, yes. yes. And he used to speak in this very sort of Cockney camp way as well, and when he was picked up for being drunk and disorderly in Old Compton Street, and he seemed to be being put in the back of the Black Mariah, he said to the constable, I'm a very famous painter. <laughs> um, Francis didn't have to boast about anything, and the amount of money he had and, and burnt and given to people and... But he was genuinely, as the years go by, a frightening man. Yes, there was always that air of terror. He'd had a doctor work on him who would look after him. He'd like being beaten up, seriously. He was mad seriously. regularly, though. Seriously. Yes, for sexual purposes, but... But seriously, I mean... He, so he chose to get beaten up. Yes, oh, well, I'm God, afraid yes. so, yeah. But, I mean, seriously beaten up. And I told the doctor I had to put his eyeball in once. Oh, God. The following morning. Yeah, yeah seriously, you know... Talking of women, uh, Marsh Dunbar, a great friend of mine, uh, with whom Graham Mason lived in the Isle of Dogs. And she survived and she worked. She worked until she was 65, you know, at the, the Economist. And she was sort of the life and soul of the part and, and took quite a positive view. She said that Francis Bacon was the funniest person she'd ever known. She loved Francis, thought he was very kind. She thought that um, John Minton was great fun. John Minton was a painter. Ruined by Francis Bacon. Ah, but he killed himself at the age of 39 because he couldn't bear to be Why? 40. Why did he kill himself? Bindman was doing very well after the war. But then at the end of the war, and, and his drawings were selling well to magazines, and he was quite a star. And he mixed with Francis and drank with that mob up there. And Francis, when asked about what he thought of his work, said, He can't paint. He's a book illustrator. Boom, bang, that went straight into him. He never got over it. Mm, yeah. He just gave up. And that, you know, but Francis also, and, you know, people would say, well, what do you think of Sansa? Oh, he's not. It, just <laughs> it might have been that. The other thing was that, was that Minton was homosexual and was not terribly happy about it. And he was, you know, being 40 was... Um, oh, right. Maybe loves old. a fairy when she's 40. Exactly. So, so who knows? I don't know. Nobody knows, do they? <laughs> Francis Spaulding wrote a very good biography of him, which I recommend. Oh, right. But there's the, the something in... I mean, Bacon yeah, lovely to, illustration. But Bacon used to say the same about himself, I can't paint. And I'm afraid that one day I actually agreed with him rather too enthusiastically. So what do you remember of Geoffrey Bernard and his drinking? It was the devotion to drink, which was so remarkable in some people, very single-minded, um, and particularly in, in way of health. I mean, Geoffrey's 
he had a hobby, I think you remarked, of observing his own well, he wrote about it here. Falling I mean, apart. He wrote it, about it endlessly in The Spectator. And first of all, he had these terrible cysts on the back of his No one knew neck. about that. Well, they were fairly obvious. They I know, go to the side of oranges. earphones now. Um, in fact, you said that you ought to make a feature of them and put a little hat on each one. <laughs> I don't think that went down very well. I don't, I don't remember what you were talking about. No? That's a lie. Um, we were all in the same boat. We were a mess and we put up with it. And you people were rude and horrible and outrageous, but they were fun, original, and they, their like, presumably, does not exist anymore. Absolutely not. I see the report today, or hear it on the radio, that no drink is the only answer. Well, but it has to be said, that look at Geoffrey Bernard's end, from what you say, it was fairly typical of a lot of characters on this scene. Geoffrey was different. He was, he had, I tried to keep up with it, but I kept backing off. I wouldn't go with it to the end. He'd say to me, yeah, I've got any... Guts! Mm. <laughs> and I realised that, of course, you've got to be pretty fit to drink yourself to death in Soho. And I sort of caught up with him occasionally, and it was very difficult, because, after all, <clears throat> women fell in love with him. Good-looking, nice, charming women were in love with him, quite un- and they'd marry him. And they didn't seem to realise that they weren't going to go to the theatre, they weren't going to go to the cinema, they'd occasionally be asked to go out with him for a meal, but he'd fall asleep in the soup, so it wasn't romantic. In any way, I mean, they keep coming back. They thought they could save him, literally. They were mothering him. In the end, he decided to commit suicide and invited me to do it with him, or not to commit suicide with him, but to have a meal with him in his horrible flat. Behind the King of Corsica, in a high-rise council flat. That was his last place. Awful. Like a huge ashtray. Remember, he smoked continually. And his artificial leg was standing in the bath, unused. He never had the strength or determination to use his leg. And then next to it was a bucket full of underclothes, uh, sort of swimming around in disinfectant. Anyway, I went with him up to the ashtray flat that he had and uh, there were two women there and these women specialised in t- turning up and looking after him and bringing him expensive stuff from Fortnum Masons to eat and uh, he'd go mm, rude to them or something like that they didn't mind that at all anyway he got up half he was eating all the food he wasn't allowed to eat he was on dialysis and he couldn't take dialysis anymore and he lost one foot the other one was going to be taken off and he couldn't take it anymore, he decided to kill himself. And we sat there and choked and lost it. He ate all the wrong food, Chinese or whatever it was, and drank all the booze he wanted to drink, vodka and things like that. And then he got up this morphine, huge tablets about that big, and in front of us, uh, down to about eight, and crashed. And we carried him, carried him to bed. And um, he woke up and he said, I feel great. I feel great, I feel all right. <laughs> then went back to sleep again and I left and he died about three in the morning but yes, yeah, sad ending it's a very different world isn't it and oh, it would be marvellous to get some of the dreary um, management types who exist now and take them back 30 years and put them in the coach or the colony club to be shouted at by somebody I don't, it wouldn't make a man of them but it might make them think and that's all for this week If you enjoyed the podcast, do let us know. We always like to hear from you. You can go to the iTunes store to subscribe, rate and review the podcast. Let us know what you like or don't like. 
And if you pick up this week's issue, you'll be able to read all of the pieces discussed, as well as more from Douglas Murray, Joan Collins and Lionel Shriver. Plus, we've got a special subscription offer. You can get a free thermal-insulated Spectator water bottle with your subscription if you subscribe at spectator.co.uk forward slash water. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. 